Trinity. How are we doing? I love you, stranger in the balcony. Unless you're a Warriors fan. What? Celtics? That might be worse. All righty. Have you guys had a good weekend? A little tired? That is weakness. And you must dismiss it from your mind. Are you tired? Yeah. All right. Here we go. Oh, well, hey, I've had an awesome weekend hanging out with you guys. Hey, wait, where the, where's the flying Tarshish ship? Hey, that, that was remarkable. That was remarkable. Um, I've seen a lot of block, box sled blitzes. Wow, that's hard to say. Uh, that was one of the best, one of the best. Um, I've had an awesome time hanging out with you guys. I want to jump into our final chapter of Jonah today and... Can I ask God once more to bless our time in his word um, because I need his help and so do you. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we pray to a God who hears. Um, prayer is not a ritual. It's not tradition. It's not the pregame show. It's not something we have to do. It's something we need to do um, because, Lord, we are fully reliant and dependent upon a power that is outside of us for you to change and transform our perspective and our lives. As we look to the word of God, would we be reminded this morning, tune my heart and tune all of our hearts, God, to be keenly aware of the reality that when the Bible is taught, God speaks. So many students and so many people around the world wanna hear God speak to them. And God, you speak to me every single day through the living and active word of God. And so, Lord, would you give us that mindset and mentality today as we approach the precious truth that is your word. We pray this in your name and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. All right, Jonah, can I recap real quick? Jonah is commissioned by God to go, and he says, no, I don't want to go. And the reason that he doesn't want to go is you just saw it in the skit. He doesn't think God's mercy should be extended to the people that he thinks are Boston Celtics fans, and I got to agree with him. But uh, even those types of people, lost, degenerate Celtics fans, deserve the mercy of God. And in chapter 2, he's running from God, and a big fish swallows him up. And there in the fish, Jonah is humbled by the supremacy of God. He recognizes the sovereignty of God. And if, as a way of reminder, God's sovereignty means that God is the conductor of the universe. He appoints fish. He appoints the sun to rise, the sun to set. He's going to appoint a plant, a worm in chapter 4. He is governing every single thing in all of creation. And in chapter 3, that after being vomited out by the fish, that guy Jonah is going to go up to the Ninevites one day into the city and he's gonna preach a five-word sermon. 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Walks away, not thinking anything of it, and it's the greatest revival in human history. People are weeping, they're in sackcloth and ashes, and maybe you're like, I don't even understand what that means. But it's the equivalent of just, it is a visible manifestation of an internal brokenness. And that's what sackcloth and ashes is. It's, it's an expression outwardly of an inward reality. And there is a great revival, and it says in verse 10 that God did not bring judgment upon them. Now, can I read Jonah 4 for us? It says, but it greatly displeased Jonah, 
and he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, do you have a good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it until the shade, in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came and the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all of his soul to die, saying, God, it, death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, do you have a good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have a good reason to be angry even to death. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left hand, as well as many animals. This is a remarkable passage because Jonah is very angry. In verse one, it says that he is displeased, but you need to understand what this, this word means. It means that Jonah is seething ticked off at God. Think about the maddest you've ever been. I remember when I was growing up, I was a pitcher in a fifth grade farm ball. You know, it was a big deal. I used to kind of put my hat backwards. There was a guy playing baseball when I was growing up. His name is Ken Griffey Jr. And uh, he put his hat backwards, and I would be there like this in fifth grade. Mm -mm, mm -mm. I mean, I thought I was bad to the bone. And I remember that season in fifth grade, we went 0-21. We lost every game. Um, I was in every single game, at the end of the game, all these, I mean, I was like a full, I looked like a little kid, but in my mind, I was just a full man at age 11. Because every single game, the game would end, and all my friends, they're not my friends, and you'll understand why, they would throw their gloves in the air at the end of the game and yell, what? Snack time. And they would run over, and all the mommies would give us little slices of oranges and a Capri Sun and an Otter Pop, and I'd be there on the mound going, gah, 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 you don't want to win, you're losers. And I was ticked off. And that was just for me, it's the maddest I think I get, I've ever been, was going 0-21. Um, losing stinks. If anybody ever tells you it's just about being a participant, not me. Not me at all. I wanted the win, okay? Amen? Amen. So I was seething mad. And the idea here for Jonah is he's not just a little, uh, like, disturbed. He's ticked off. He's seething. He's fuming at the mouth. It wasn't only Nineveh that was waiting to see if God would show them judgment. Who else was waiting? Jonah was waiting, and he was astonished 
and surprised that God did not send judgment. Jonah had previously said 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown and the 41st day comes and Jonah is angry. Why is Jonah angry? Well, a few things because I think there's a few different things for us to see in God's word. Number one, Jonah was angry for God's sake because he's going to think on God's behalf. He thinks he knows the mind of God. Do you ever think you know the mind of God? He's gonna say, God, you don't understand that if you forgive a people like this, you're going to be mocked because people are gonna think they can run all over you. If you forgive people like the Ninevites, what's next? They're the most evil people on earth and he's angry because God, you don't get it. Trust me, I'm a prophet, I understand things and people are gonna think you're soft. You send judgment, people will respect you. You send mercy, people will think you're a joke. Jonah is angry for God's sake, but secondly, Jonah is angry for Jonah's sake. In Deuteronomy 18, the criteria for a prophet was that his prophecies would be fulfilled. You and I live in a world where there are people that say they're prophets all the time. And the way that you know if it's real, right, as the same way they know in the Old Testament, is if it actually comes to pass. I remember one time I was in Santa Monica and a guy came up to me and said, you will have 30 children. And I'm not going to lie, I'd be kind of pumped on it. But I just don't think that's going to happen. You know, and the way that I can tell if he's a genuine prophet is if it what? It happens if it comes to pass. And in Deuteronomy 18, it says, don't trust the prophet who says things and those things don't come to pass. Jonah had not said, unless you repent. Jonah had gone to the city and said, hey, I'm telling you something that's for sure going to happen. 40 days, you're going to be destroyed. Hasta la vista, baby. And then on the 41st day, Jonah is angry because now his reputation is ruined. He wants to be seen as a Christian figure more than he wants to see other people come to Christ. Third, he is angry for Israel's sake. Jonah's dilemma is that years before this, God had prophesied that the people of Israel would be punished by the Assyrian people because of Israel's prolonged and continued disobedience. And so here's what Jonah knows. I mean, I don't know if you know this. Jonah is being sent to save a people that had been previously prophesied to destroy his own people. The irony of this, God is going to save the Ninevites, the wicked Ninevites, and then he's gonna use the Ninevites to overthrow Israel. And Jonah knows this. And he's angry. He has a motivation that's mixed with pride and self-preservation. And so he calls on God to give an account. He says, hey, God, step into my office. This is audacious. You're out of your mind. I knew it. I knew it. And in this verse of seething anger, Jonah confesses three wonderful realities about God. He would have learned a similar song, sitting on his mother's knee from a boy. It's a song from Exodus 34. And he's going to declare to God in a moment of anger some of the greatest things there are about my God. Number one, he says, God, you are a gracious God. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God. 
Do you want to know the character of God? God loves to extend grace and mercy. Okay, let's talk. What's the difference between mercy and grace? You need to understand this because we've been saying God shows mercy. We also say that he shows grace. What's the difference between mercy and grace? Because if you're a Christian, you've received both of those things, okay? Mercy is not receiving what you do deserve, okay? I deserve, okay, so here's, uh, you deserve to be punched in the face, okay? And I don't punch you in the face, I gave you mercy, okay? I don't know why you would deserve to be punched in the face other than if you're a Warriors fan. Okay, so back at it. You don't get what you do deserve. Now, what's grace? Grace is not mercy. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is receiving a free gift that you could never deserve. Grace is receiving something. Mercy is not receiving what you deserve. Grace is receiving a tremendous gift that you could never earn or merit or buy. And God is both of those things because he doesn't punish you for your sin if you're in Christ. And he does, not only that, he gives you something. And do you know what God gives you that's most precious? Himself. And Jonah says, I knew it. God is a God of justice, but he's a God of mercy and grace towards those who come to him. And he says, God, don't you get it? These people are perverted sinners for generations, and you're letting them off of the hook. And you know what's worse about this? The worst thing is I knew you were going to do it, God. I knew it. But God is not only gracious. Number two, God is patient. Slow to anger. Okay, this idea here means that God has a long fuse. Have you guys ever seen a movie where kind of like they have the strand that's got psh, and then there's a bunch of dynamite at the end? Does that make sense, what I'm talking about? The idea here is that God has a long fuse. It's not like you tick God off and it's like kaboom. It's the idea here that God is patient. What a prayer. Do you know that God has been patient with you if you're still breathing air? Because every single breath that you breathe is a gift from God, it says in Acts 17. And so I want you to contrast this with me. Here's Jonah, and, and, and one thing to note in the passage, it's not like Jonah goes up on this hill to observe what happens after the 40 days. He preaches his sermon, and then he goes up on a hill, and do you know what Jonah's doing? Sits in his chair under a tree, and he's going, day 27, do it, God, do it, fire, Burn them. Gosh, day 28, do it, God. Unleash on them. They're wicked. Day 29, God, avenge yourselves. Yourself. Day 30, day 31, day 32, God, do it. Why are you waiting? Day 39, God, last day or you'll be a joke. Day 40, do it, God. Now's the time. Bring the full cup of your wrath, please. Day 41. I knew it. I knew it. You're a joke. God is patient. You know why? He loves to save sinners. 
not seeking any to come to destruction, but for all men to come to repentance. Do you want to know how God's been patient with you? Runner from him. He gives you opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to be reconciled with him. Do you know what Satan's job is as the accuser? They don't deserve your mercy. They don't deserve you, God. Punish them. Third thing, Jonah says, abounding in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. This is the covenant love of God. Do you know what the word abounding means? If I'm carrying a cup of water that's full to the brim and you bump my elbow, what's gonna happen? Well, first I'm gonna elbow you back. And then what's gonna happen to the water? It spills. Because it's not like I carry a jar of water. It's not a mason jar that's 32 ounces that I fill with one ounce. It's a mason jar that's a fountain. It's always overflowing. So you don't actually need to bump me. It's just always flowing. And the idea that God is abundant in loving kindness means that if you're gonna just bump God, he's overflowing with love. God demonstrates and executes justice, but do you know what God is? Not that he equals love. So anytime you say God equals love, that's, that's failing to recognize what the Bible teaches. But the Bible says God is love because love is so near the essence of who God is. It says God is love, and it's not just that he is love. God isn't rationing his love off. It's not like God has a certain amount of love that he then divides amongst the infinite amount of children that he has. He has an infinite amount of love and he distributes that infinitely to each and every single child of his. I'm one of seven kids. There's a reality that a father can only spend a certain amount of time with each of their seven kids, right? But God isn't rationing off his love going, you have no idea. I had 18 people come and profess to know me. I have to now take my allotted amount of love and now divide it amongst 18 more people. That's not the way the God of the Bible is. He has an infinite amount of love and that's why over and over throughout the Bible it says, the said love of God is abounding. You will never drain the love of God dry. And Jonah says, I knew it. This is the greatest reality in the world. And Jonah is ticked. Now, God's going to ask him a question, a question verse four. Do you have a good reason to be angry? He says, yes, I'm so angry, I want to die. And then God is gonna cause Jonah to think, Jonah, these people repented at the sound of my voice. You did not repent until I had you swallowed by a great fish. You are mad because the shelter that I provided in a plant is gone. And yet you are not rejoicing that I provided them from shelter from the full measure of my wrath. Jonah, is there anything in your life that you are more concerned about than to see unconverted sinners repent and be reconciled with the holy God. 
Are you so concerned, Jonah, and are you so concerned today about your own comfort and safety that you rarely regard people that will spend eternity in hell? What a contrast between Jonah and our greater Jonah. Jonah's God is full of compassion. Jonah is full of anger. Jonah sought destruction. The greater Jonah seeks reconciliation. Jonah was asking for fire, but the greater Jonah came to save. This earthly Jonah says, I want to die rather than to see you save sinners. And the greater Jonah came to die in order that he might save sinners. The earthly Jonah is selfish and doesn't want to lift a finger. The greater Jonah humbled himself and became obedient to death, even to death on a cross. Jonah's heart, once again, is misaligned with God's. It's not only that, he's in direct disobedience in submission to what God wants. With the remainder of our time, we don't have much time. I want you to just understand what God is causing us to consider in his word. I don't want to say anything the Bible's not saying. I want to tell us exactly what it is saying. And God is causing us to consider something. He wants you to think. Everybody think. Use your heads here. God is saying, do you not regard people, Jonah, that will face my justice? Do you not regard them? And you might say, I would have never done what Jonah did. I would never have run from the will of God. And the word of God pierces because it asks us questions. It says, you may never have been on a ship to Tarshish, but you are the same as Jonah. Every single time you run from your God-given command to preach the gospel. And you know when that is? Every single day of your life because you have been left here for one purpose. If you're a Christian and God has reconciled you to be brought near to himself, and you're going to be with him for all of eternity, the question we must logically ask is, why am I not already in heaven? The answer is because God has given you a mission. And the mission of God for the people of God is to preach the message of God to those who are enemies of God. And you might say, I'd never do what Jonah does. But let me just tell you, a life of passive disobedience is the same thing as active rebellion. And so you might say, I'm not Jonah, but let me just encourage you, friend, and challenge you. You are Jonah when you do a few things. When you value your comfort and safety over the eternal safety of those who do not know God. You are like Jonah when you neglect to preach God's word to those who are unlike him. You are like Jonah when you think these people will be disinterested. You don't understand God. They'll reject the message anyway. It's not worth my time. And the Bible says you're exactly like Jonah because you don't understand the heart of God is to preach the gospel to every single nation, tribe, tongue, people under the sun. And you're the exact same person as Jonah when you go, God, you don't know. I've already tried. I'm sure someone else has told them they'll be disinterested. They'll actually reject me. They might be hostile towards me. The Ninevites would have been hostile towards Jonah. And he's running through all these excuses. And, Jonah, and God says to Jonah, I've given you a command. 
And if you're a child of God, God has given you a command. But here's what the Bible does. Can you turn to Matthew 5 with me for a moment? I want you to observe something with me. I think so much at camp or in other settings, there's a go home type of message. And you know what that go home message is typically, and I've done this a a number of times, I've run hundreds of camps. This passage in Matthew 5 I've been studying, I work full time as the Dean of Student Life at a school called the Masters University down south. It's a Christian liberal arts school. And we've been working through Matthew 5 and the idea of it in our chapel because it's so important for us to understand first that God never, um, or at least when speaking with Christians, he always, God as Jesus is, is always going to emphasize what a Christian is before he emphasizes what a Christian does. He's going to start with your identity. Now the question is, we live in a dying, dark, decaying world and you turn on the news and you see the brokenness of it and the question is, what is God's great plan to deal with the darkness of the world? Do you know the answer? God's great big plan to deal with the darkness of the world is you. And he's going to tell you that clearly. Matthew 5 Verse 13, Jesus is preaching his greatest sermon ever recorded. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, there's two different things. Jesus doesn't say you have to be something. He says you are something. And those two things are salt and light. And the way that you need to understand what salt is, is salt is a preservative. It mingles with the substance that's dying. So salt was used in the Old Testament in ancient times to preserve a meat so that it wouldn't decay. And Jesus is saying salt, you are because you mingle with a corrupt, decaying, dying world. And salt is, by very nature, our Christian influence. Because he's just talked through in the Beatitudes the character of a Christian. And the first and most powerful, potent reality that a Christian is to wield in a dark world is their own Christian character. Sometimes I feel like I debate between, hey, five strategies for engaging an unbeliever in a conversation. Jesus always starts with this. The most powerful testimony you can possibly have in a, di- in a dark world is a holy life. You wanna make a big difference for God's kingdom? Be like Jesus Christ. And he's going to say that as you do so, your life will be like salt in a world of corruption. It's going to preserve it. It's going to impede the level of corruption. That's what Christians do in society. They impede the level of corruption that would be happening if they were not there. But let me tell you this. Jesus is going to say you are salt and light. Now, salt is your silent Christian witness. It's as you live. You don't, ju- you don't joke at the things Jesus Christ came to die for. You don't laugh at the things Jesus Christ came to die for. You don't play that game. You don't watch those shows. You don't do the things that you shouldn't do in order to honor Jesus Christ. And people are going to observe that and go, this guy's different. Question for you. 
so much in our life, especially in evangelical settings, they want to gird you with questions to ask an unbeliever. Where would you go today if you were to die? My question for you is, how come more people don't ask you questions? How are you so different than me? Why do you seem to have so much more joy than me? I saw the way that you handled that tragedy. How do you do it? And Jesus says, if you're salt, yes, you, you should ask questions, but the most powerful thing you wield is a life that people ask questions about. And if people aren't asking you questions, you're not salty enough. But Jesus says, secondly, you're light. Now, and I've said this before here and in many other places, you've grown up in an environment where people have said things like preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Someone who would never ever say that is Jesus Christ. Because he's going to say you are something, you are a Christian influence, but Romans 10 says faith comes by hearing. There's no such thing as a person in heaven that saw someone open up a door for an elderly woman and they said, man, this must be a higher deity named Jesus Christ. Oh God, what do I do, repent? Okay, no, they're there because they heard the message of the gospel and they received the message of the gospel by faith because someone else told them. And Jonah must have thought, someone else will tell the Ninevites. God, if that's really your plan, you'll do it with someone else. You'll do it with someone else. And God tells us through his word in Romans 10, how will they know unless you do it? No one else is gonna witness to your brother. No one else is gonna witness to your team. You do it. Because he says you are light, and light is our vocal proclamation of the gospel to the lost. So our salt is our Christian testimony. We live different. People go, have you seen this guy? Do you know Lauren? Do you know Jake? They're different. They have a joy, and it, their life is so difficult. They've gone through true, tra tr true tragedy and sorrow and pain and loss. Man, I tried, to, I tried to offer them this, and they said, no, I'm good. I want to honor Jesus Christ. And that's all, but the light is to go, can I tell you why I'm so different? Can I tell you why? And routinely in the New Testament, when people start to share the, share the gospel, they start by doing so with their own testimony. Because if you are, you want to know how much you love Jesus Christ? I'll give you an exact measure of it. How much you long to talk about what he's done in your life. Do you talk little about Jesus? The Bible says that likely means there's little love for Jesus. And so if you've been changed by God, what's contagious? I mean, what's the most successful way of marketing a new restaurant? You know 90% of restaurants fail in their first two years? They might go like, hey, you don't understand, I'm gonna be social, I'm gonna talk about it, I'm gonna run ads on it. What's the most successful way of marketing a new restaurant? It's called word of mouth. Have you been? It's amazing. I literally can't get enough. We live an hour and a half when I was here at Hume Lake from Fresno. And in Fresno, there was a new restaurant. And it was like everybody was like, what are you doing? I don't know, but I'm gonna drive three hours to get a sandwich. Why? Because everyone was like pumped on it. And if you're a Christian and if you've been changed by God, word of mouth going, man, I gotta tell you, hey, do you have a minute? I gotta tell you the joy I have in Christ and this is called our light. God is not telling you to be anything that you're not, to, you're not already. He's not saying be the salt and light of the world. He's saying you already are. 
Don't you understand your identity? I've changed and transformed you. Be who you are. He's not trying to change you. He's trying to tell you exactly who you've been changed to be. Now, I'm not a handy guy. I'm not going to lie. I'm embarrassed by my wife, okay? She's Chip, I'm Joe, in like the house type of dynamic. <laughs> I feel pretty like accomplished when I change a light bulb, okay? I used to be able to say like, I can figure out anything with a YouTube video. It's like, no, just give me some books, some abstract theories, I'm good. Some calculus, yeah. But like ask me to like level out a two by four and like, Lord, please come quickly, okay? <laughs> But when Jesus says you are something, it's not like he's making me be a car guy all of a sudden being like, hey, pop the hood. I think it's uh, your radiator. Uh, and like, I'm like trying to speak a new language. No, it's not like that. I'm not trying to be anything I'm not. He's saying you have been changed to be something and now go into the world and do it. Now what light does quickly is it's gonna do three things. It's going to expose the darkness. Number one, light exposes the darkness. People are living in the dark. People look at it and they say, what's wrong with the world? The world is full of darkness. That's wrong with the world. That's what's wrong with it. And they don't know that they're living in the dark until when? Until a what? Light is turned on. People have no concept of light if they're living in a dark world unless they see light. And what light does is it exposes the darkness. People begin to recognize, actually, I've been living in the dark and I've never seen the chains that bind me. I've never seen the lack of hope that I have. I've never seen the lack of meaning that I have, the lack of satisfaction and significance, the lack of love that I've received and given back to the God who loves me. I've never observed it because I've been living in the dark. And so what light does is it penetrates the dark and it begins to illuminate in the minds of people that have been living in it, I am lost. And this is your job as a Christian. It is to expose the darkness. Darkness, people that live in the world right now, they are children of darkness, they were born in the dark, they're raised in the dark, they live in the dark, and they will spend eternity in the dark. And the sole cause of all the troubles in the world from the personal to the international level right now is that people are in darkness, not just in regards to the fact that they are irreligious, but there's also a darkness that has a spiritual face. When Jesus sits down with Nicodemus, he's the most religious man in Israel and he still doesn't get what a child who has come to know Jesus understands. Jesus wants us to understand in order for us to be light, we must be burdened and gripped by our responsibility to be light in the darkness. Not only that, light secondly transforms the darkness. Our Lord doesn't just pronounce that the world is dark and decaying. He says, you must go into the world and shine the light of Jesus Christ. The greatest thinkers in the world and the greatest philosophers in the world are completely baffled by what a Christian understands five pages into the New Testament. The problem with the world is not a lack of education. The most educated sinners do the most damage. The problem with the world is that it's full of darkness. Christian people, you and I are living in the midst of men and women who are in gross darkness. And if you have the light of Jesus Christ, the most selfish thing you, that you can ever do and the epitome of hatred is to hide the light of Jesus by your passive disobedience. Jesus does not merely give people new teaching or new understanding. 
he gives them a new desire and new aspirations to preach the message that saved him. Lastly, it says in verse 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You might have recognized or you know, heard as a kid that your life is to be glorif- you know, glorifying to God. Your life will never be glorifying to God unless the people that live in darkness know who to glorify when they receive the light of Jesus Christ. It says that they may glorify your father. How are they to know who to glorify if you don't say that the reason that there's so much change and transformation within me is because I have a father in heaven who's adopted me and loved me and sent his son to die for me and now I have tremendous hope, tremendous peace that surpasses all understanding amidst the crippling anxieties of this world. I am like a firm stone. I cannot be moved because my savior cannot be moved because he has filled me with his love. The only way they know who to glorify is if you're proclaiming whom has transformed you. What prevents our light from shining? The greater Jonah says here, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket. What prevents our light from shining is, number one, wrong placement. The greater Jonah says, candles are not made by the candlestick maker in a room full of other candles so that they can talk in shock and awe about how world or how dark the world is. He doesn't say, I haven't made you light. I haven't given you a light so that you can gather and huddle together and say, it's so dark out there. Let's all shine our lights at each other. What prevents the world from knowing the light of Jesus Christ is so often that Christians gather in holy huddles and talk about how just depraved everyone else is. Jesus is saying, if you have a light, you need to go find the darkest corner of the earth and shine it boldly and brightly there. So many Christians today, they just... They just literally on social media in their own churches go, man, look how dark the world is. And Jesus says, of course how dark the world is because all you do is talk trash about how dark the world is and you gather as holy huddles and you point your lights at each other. I have given you a light to shine it into darkness. So wrong placement. Number two, wrong priorities. The greatest hindrance in your life to being useful for Christ is your lack of conformity to Christ. The greatest hindrance in your life to being useful for Christ is your lack of conformity to Christ. And number three, wrong motives. Our motives must always be for the glory of God. Bugs are not drawn to a light bulb. They are drawn to the, what? The light itself. And so often people that proclaim the light of Jesus Christ want others to be attracted to them. And Jesus says this is always a wrong priority and wrong motivation. Popularity matters nothing in the eyes of God. In the day of judgment, pastors will be unknown. Celebrity Christians will be unknown. Only Jesus Christ will be known. I, if you're my brother or my sister or I, I don't get the opportunity to go home and, and really gather with you much, 
We've, we've been singing about the heart of joy that God has and the joy that we can have in Him. Do you really want to live a life of joy? The most joyful people I know have one thing in common. They have devoted their life to that which brings God the greatest joy. If you're a Christian, you cannot have a life of joy unless you are faithful in obedience in proclaiming Jesus Christ to those who are lost. Because you have now been hardwired within your soul with an understanding that you have been made on purpose for purpose and that purpose is to shine vocally. I studied finance in college and accounting and I worked in private equity after school because I wanted to go and buy multifamily real estate um, and, and be a real estate investor and I wanted to flip businesses and I, if you asked me at 16 what I wanted to do, I would say I wanted to do mergers and acquisitions with an emphasis on multifamily investments. And maybe down the road, I'll be able to manage my different assets and then be able to go into some sort of Christian ministry. And at 24, I became burdened because I had met a kid that was a, a foster kid that did something stupid and was sent to juvenile hall for the next 30 years and then I'll go to prison. And I went into juvie hall and I started preaching on Monday nights and playing basketball with 13, 15-year-olds. And I saw one of those students that will be in jail the rest of his life come to a saving relationship with God. My life changed because I had unparalleled joy that no mansion could ever provide. And I wanted to be a part of that. And if you want to have joy that is unparalleled to anything the world can provide, no vacation home, no car, you join your hand with God's and say, I'll go wherever you want me to go. Because the greater Jonah already left his heavenly home to die for me. I'll leave the comforts of this world and die for you. Let me pray. God, we love you and we're so thankful for your son, the greater Jonah, who's so opposite of the earthly Jonah, who loves comfort and peace and security and safety, who withholds your mercy. We pray that we would live like our greater Jonah. Oh God, I pray that you would devote the lives of these students to your word. Give them a hunger for the church, the people of God. Because you haven't called us to live in isolation, but in cooperation with the children of God. So I pray that they would devote their lives to your word, your church, and be filled with your spirit so that they might know you, be transformed by you, and faithfully proclaim the message that you have given to us. And that message is Jesus saves us from our sin because he has died for us and rose for us, ascended to the right hand of God, and one day is coming back for us. I love you, God, and I'm so thankful you love me. I pray this in your name. And all God's people said... I love you guys. Thank you.